We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. My name is Stuart Richardson. Landscapes of Consciousness will highlight those who fight to protect the land, a sharing of hopeful visions and stories that bring us back to the land, a place that heals and replenishes us in a world that is in rapid transition. My hope is that we come to know we are a single whole with each other and nature, that when we hurt nature, we are hurting ourselves. Online, I'm very privileged to have Damien Gillis, who's a BC-based documentary filmmaker and journalist. He's directed and produced the award-winning feature documentary, Fractured Land, and is co-founder and publisher of the Common Sense Canadian and Online Journal. Hey, Damien, welcome to the show. Oh, it's always great to be on your show, Stuart. Now, a few months ago, myself and many millions of Canadians were surprised that we own a pipeline. It seems that our federal government is in the process of spending billions of dollars to buy a private company's 70-year-old pipeline, and I'm very cynical about this. Can you speak to this new Trudeau's government and their record on the environment? Because they certainly speak a good game in the UN and uh, speak like they really care about climate change. Can you... Um, speak to this new Trudeau government? Well, yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. There were a lot of promises made, both uh, in terms of reconciliation with First Nations uh, and the environment and, that have subsequently been broken. I, I think like the story that emerged from the Trudeau government to explain a very convoluted position, which is that in order to tackle climate change, we have to first build a bunch of new hydrocarbon pipelines and that's very con confusing and hypocritical sounding, I think, to a lot of people. The news then came out, uh, the, the commentary from Trudeau was that, well, this was essential to get Alberta to buy into um, a, a Canadian uh, carbon pricing strategy. And and so if we didn't go along with uh, with the Kinder Morgan pipeline and other projects, then they would uh, they'd bail on that. That's a bit of a risky strategy, though, as you see with the... Doug Ford, who just uh, got into um, uh, power in Ontario and is cancelling a lot of the programs of his predecessor on that note. So I, I think the idea of kowtowing to the kind of the lowest common denominator in order to advance uh, climate goals is really a backward type of thinking. And there are many First Nations who have very strong misgivings about uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline and it didn't had feelings about the uh, Lilu Island, proposed Lilu Island LNG plant and pipeline associated with that and what it would do uh, in terms of affecting wild salmon uh, and other important uh, environmental values. And it, it seems that these overtures toward reconciliation and respecting the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People really only goes as far as it's convenient for the government when it comes to uh, upholding its uh, energy and economic policies. None of this really is a surprise to anybody, I think, who has studied Justin Trudeau and his liberal government, even going back to prior to uh, him being elected. Just after he gained the liberal leadership, I wrote a piece called Why Justin Trudeau May Be More Dangerous Than Stephen Harper, uh, referring to environmental issues. And it's, you know, based on just the things, comments he'd made, talking to the Petroleum Club, talking about essentially he would be better at selling uh, pipelines to the public, that he would he was a smoother talker than Stephen Harper, and he had a better ability to finesse these things. Not that he was going to be more credible on that file. And so once 
the establishment in Canada, you know, the finance and energy sectors realized that uh, he was going to continue with many of the policies that were important to them. Uh, of course, it was only a matter of time before uh, he would replace Stephen Harper and begin to enact those policies. Now, Damien, I was speaking recently to an environmentalist um, at uh, one of these camps, the Block Kindermorgan, and he said, you know, at least with Stephen Harper, I knew what I was dealing with with Justin Trudeau, you know, he's like, uh, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He says, I, I prefer someone who's just honest about what yep. their agenda is. Now, to be the devil's advocate, I recently read an article where Justin Trudeau was saying that they've invested in world-class cleanup efforts, <clears throat> that they would stand by that, and that um, this pipeline wouldn't cross into uh, certain traditional territories, and many First Nations are actually signing up to be part of this uh, process. How would you respond to that? Well, the marine protection thing, um, you know, it's just there are still a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to how bitumen behaves when it hits uh, ocean water or um, or uh, fresh water. Uh, that we don't have enough certainty around that uh, to to say make those kinds of statements reliably. A successful oil spill cleanup is kind of in the in the low double digit figures. That's what's considered to be if you get. 10 or 15, 20% of an oil spill recovered, that would be an absolute best case scenario. Many aspects of our coastline are, are, are very rugged and, uh, and you know, don't lend themselves well to this kind of cleanup. We saw this in, in a very, you know, relatively speaking, a, a very minor incident that actually has had huge consequences, which was the Nathan E. Stewart uh, tugboat that was pulling a, um, a fuel barge uh, from Alaska down the BC coast through near Bella Bella when it ran aground and the tugboat uh, leaked a whole bunch of diesel fuel into the marine environment, destroyed important clam beds and cultural sites for the Celtic people. Um, it took the better part of a day for the ocean response uh, team to show up. Now, you know, they may be able to get there a little bit quicker with, with some additional investment uh, in in, these, in, a, in this ocean uh, uh, disaster response program, uh, but it's still going to take a long time in, in many cases, and you can't predict the weather. And there are all kinds of variables in that situation. Uh, the swells and the tidal uh, movements and changes made it very difficult to get buoys and and clean up equipment around that situation. And that was, you know, included. The first responders from the Helta community, much like when the Queen of the North went down in Gitgat territory near Hartley Bay, and it was the First Nations who were the first ones there, and they saved a lot of lives. But nobody could stop that boat from uh, dumping a whole bunch of diesel fuel into the marine environment. And there's no amount of technology in the world that can that can account for uh, these kinds of problems, and nor for human error. I mean. In both of these cases, human error, as was in the case of the Exxon Valdez, a disastrous spill in Alaska over 20 years ago now. Uh, in all of these cases, human error was, was uh, at the root of the problem. So we, you can have all the equipment that you want. You can put a lot of money behind it, but there's still going to be problems. And when they do happen, they're going to be very difficult to respond to. And it strikes me that Justin Trudeau is somebody who has spent some time in British Columbia, has family roots here, and yet doesn't really understand this place. He doesn't understand what moves British Columbians. It, he doesn't understand this coastline, the geography, uh, and the very kind of specific nature of, 
of the problems that uh, that we're dealing with here. So he can talk all he wants about this, you know, ocean marine response program. Uh, it, that's not going to solve any problems when the rubber meets the road. As far as the First Nations comment, there are a number of First Nations who have signed various types of agreements. That doesn't necessarily always mean consent. It does, it, just because they've signed an impact benefit agreement or some sort of uh, uh, economic benefit agreement uh, or protocol agreement uh, in order to have negotiations or have some opportunity should the pipeline go ahead doesn't mean that they're condoning it. It doesn't mean that they're, all their membership are condoning it. And it certainly doesn't negate the nations that have been very clear uh, that they are opposed to this. And those include some very critical ones, the Coast Salish nations like the Tsleil-Waututh, the Squamish, and the Musqueam, who are at the, at the you know, the, the crux of this project, where the, where the pipeline would terminate and the tanker traffic would go out uh, through the Salish Sea. And so you, you can't just say, well, there's a couple of First Nations or there are maybe even a couple dozen First Nations who are in favor of this. That doesn't override the constitutional rights under Section 35 of our constitution of those nations who have a problem with this project um, to be properly consulted to have their uh, to have their opinion listened to these are on they're on unceded territories where they have title and rights and this is uh, at the root of a of a major court case uh, at the federal court of appeal that also involves uh, some environmental groups dealing with things like um, the Species at Risk Act and elements of that that have been ignored and the impacts of tankers on, on uh, beleaguered orca populations. And that's all being rolled up along with many First Nations who have specific concerns all along the pipeline route and in, in the tidal area about this project. That could very well undermine or negate uh, or undo the permits that this project holds. It doesn't even have all its permits yet. But the ones that it does hold could be overturned by this court decision, which would make this federal government look even more foolish holding the bag here for a project that it's paid four and a half billion dollars for, which is far more than it's worth uh, in a multitude of three or four fold what what this uh, Canadian branch of Kinder Morgan and this project are actually worth. Uh, And with no valid permits to even go forward with construction. Uh, and that's all because they've ignored these very important questions that you just asked. It seems like there uh, is a propaganda war out there to influence the public uh, to be pro-pipeline. Uh, for example, I hear from Alberta that they said one province doesn't have the right to block oil reserves getting to new markets, uh, which is absolutely essential. And I also hear people ruminating about how pipelines are the safest mode of transportation to ship oil. So how would you respond to those arguments? Well, the latter is a false dichotomy. I mean, it, it, it's you're saying that you're that we need to ramp up oil shipments one way or the other. Uh, they've completely taken off the table the idea that uh, we we should not be expanding uh, oil and gas operations in this day and age of of uh, climate change. And you look at the forest fires and you look at all the problems around the world that are only increasing, and all the science that is is quite strong that suggests that. Now is not the time to be expanding uh, the oil sands. There's no Asian demand for this oil. This has been a big central myth of this whole thing. Is that 99.9% of all the shipments that went out of the port of Vancouver uh, in uh, 2016, which is uh, as of the story that was published in the TIE um, a few months back, that was the most recent year of full data that was available, 99.9% of them did not go to Asia, you know, and there's already an excess of 60 to 80 tankers a year 
uh, out of uh, Kinder Morgan's existing terminal. If there was genuine demand for that product, much of those tanker traffic would be heading to China. Uh, it isn't because they don't want it because it's dirty and expensive to refine and they have better options available to them. So the I, the whole notion of this project is that so, and, and the complaint against British Columbia is that we are somehow stifling or standing in the way of this pent up demand that Alberta is just waiting desperately to tap into and get a higher price, which is another myth, too, that somehow getting it to Tidewater and getting it to the international markets is going to bring a greater price for this oil. They're not paying more money. The Mexican crude that's going, uh, which is a comparably dirty um, and difficult to refine product that's going to China, it's fetching a lower dollar than they're paying uh, at the uh, West Texas intermediary price in North America. So all of these things have been set up to make us you know, believe that somehow this, to support this narrative that British Columbia uh, is standing in the way of uh, Alberta, uh, you know, trying to re- realize uh, the, these uh, important economic opportunities that, that we're somehow denying them of that. And, and, and very much of that narrative has been trumped up to justify this project and to make it seem like somehow like British Columbia is just this big disruptor. The BC government too, John Horgan and the NDP led government have been really scapegoated as somehow standing in the way of, uh, you know, uh, of, of, you know, and, and creating constitutional crisis with their neighboring province and the federal government. They're not, if you read Kinder Morgan's disclosures to shareholders, when they did a, a stock offering and, and took some of this company public to raise funds uh, a couple of years ago, they made a lot of disclosures. And those disclosures show you what they're really concerned about. And they are not worried about the BC government. They're worried about these very legitimate lawsuits being led by First Nations and environmental groups dealing with, with complete dereliction and duty of the National Energy Board in terms of the process that was carried out to to issue these trumped up uh permits for the pipeline they absolutely they say you know they told their shareholders that there's a real possibility that these permits could be canceled as a result of these court decisions and then on top of that they're concerned about these protesters and can you continue uh jailing and and punishing thousands and thousands of people in an urban setting like vancouver that where there's no limit to the amount of people who can put their bodies on the line for this and and are we really prepared as some conservative politicians and pundits have suggested that we should start shooting protesters. There's a real troubling current uh, going on. Uh, It's not an undercurrent. It's right out there on the surface uh, on social media and in the political discourse in our mainstream media of politicians and and prominent figures in the energy sector suggesting that there should be violence uh, and, and very heavy, you know, measures taken against these people who are, are doing what they feel they really need to do to uh, to to fight climate change and to to protect First Nations rights and and very important values that they feel morally obligated to stand up for. And so, so this is really a, a very scary and disconcerting path that we're on here in Canada right now. And the and the object of it is to continue with something that we know is incredibly destructive. Uh, to the planet and is not in the long-term economic or social interest of this country. And what it's doing is displacing opportunities to be investing in healthy, sustainable industries and alternatives that we could be using to grow the Canadian economy into the future. 
No, Damien, you're quite right. Um, this pipeline is running into the largest urban center, a billion dollars of real estate, coastline, uh, wild salmon. There's so much to risk and it's so disheartening for me and British Columbians who see the federal government as our adversary who are fighting against us. And you're quite right. I was at a rally and I even heard the mayor of Burnaby saying he'd be willing to get arrested to stop this. And the city of Vancouver is against the pipeline. So what happens, Damien, now that we essentially want like purchasing this pipeline, what happens if it doesn't get built? Are we just five, you know, billion dollars down the drain or what happens with that money? Well, there's still a lot of kind of details that have to be fleshed out here. And there hasn't been a lot of transparency in terms of these negotiations with Kinder Morgan between the federal government and Kinder Morgan. That happened behind closed doors. And I think taxpayers should be outraged with the way that this is being carried out and, and the amount of risk that's being shifted onto our shoulders. And so it's, it's hard for me to fully answer that question. There was a stage one to this process that ended... Uh, I, I, can't remember the exact deadline, but it was, it was mid uh, mid to late June that the government set to see if they could find another buyer. Essentially, it's very convoluted, but the idea of like taking the risk away from Kinder Morgan temporarily to keep the project alive and then trying to dump that to someone else. Well, it's no surprise that nobody else lined up to buy it. Uh, this project and that tells you something a lot of these people tend to speak the language of the free market uh, you know conservative kind of economic ideal well what does that tell you you know free market person when it requires a massive government bailout of a project and then they can't even sell it uh, on the market because nobody wants to buy it that tells you everything you need to know about the value of this project to taxpayers but you raise a, you know, a very good question. I don't think we have a, a full understanding of this. At this point, uh, the, so the deal is not being completed. And now because they failed to find a, a third-party buyer, th- this will be presented to shareholders, I believe, in August, late, late this month, uh, the buyout offer. And, of course, these shareholders, unless they're completely idiots, they're going to take this deal because it's a sweetheart deal that they would never get from anybody else. This is an aging pipeline. I mean, essentially what what the province is buying here is kind of three things in a package, in a basket here, which was put on the market and and fetched something in the region of $1.7 billion, I believe, when it went out to uh, a public offering not long ago. And so that gives you some indication here uh, the, of, of the value. And it includes uh, the, the Westridge Terminal, uh, the existing pipeline, which is 60 years old and has had all sorts of problems with it and continues to. We've had leaks even up in the last month or two. Uh, there's been 80-some-odd incidents with that pipeline uh, over, over its lifetime that are reportable, a large enough size that require being reported so this is a a leaky old pipeline that's worth maybe a maybe five or six hundred million dollars according to various experts that i've listened to um and then a a few other uh assets and plus the the terminal so when you take that those assets are worth maybe in the region of a a little over a billion dollars and then you have the right to build this existing pipeline, which has a bunch of highly contested permits, a bunch that are missing, and is not very far down the road, despite all the assurances that they've made in the public. Well, yeah, we're going to go ahead and build this, and we're going to get back into construction in in uh, in August or September. 
Um, there's very little that's being done here. So you're buying all of that, you know, for the very high price of four and a half billion dollars. And what happens if uh, the Court of Appeal, Federal Court of Appeal comes back and rules against? And there are like, just to put this in perspective, there are some 30 or 40 different claims that are packaged up in this set of, I believe it's 11 different plaintiffs all rolled up into one big case. They began as individual cases, and for expediency, the court rolled them into one. They don't have to win them all. They only have to win one or a few of them to cause a lot of problems for uh, the company or now for the federal government, for taxpayers in terms of building this project. And uh, so there, there's a lot of uncertainty there. I think uh, the reality is, I mean, the federal government, at the end of the day, kind of just punted the question of, do they have the guts to see this through by brutally beating up on and arresting and waging war on their own citizens in a very public fashion in Vancouver? Do they have the stomach to override uh, wholly and in a very brutal way their commitments to First Nations and our own laws and constitution when it comes to respecting those rights? Do they have the stomach to uh, to bulldoze their way through the courts and, and do something that may wind up being demonstrated to be totally unconstitutional uh, in order to get this thing built. And if the answer to any or all of those questions is no, then we are going to be left holding the bag. I believe it's quite uh, possible that we're going to end up being out at least several billion dollars worth of value in terms of the assets that are left and, and no pipeline built. Now, as you know, the current Kinder Morgan pipeline supplies the lower mainland with fuel, and I've heard critics say that, you know, look at all the cars out here, and uh, we, we can't just get a fossil fuel so quickly. So what are the realistic alternatives for, like, expanding the tar sands? What other things could we kind of move on instead of spending bad money on tar sand <laughs> pipelines? Well, first of all, that's just such a garbage argument. I'm sorry to those people, but we have enough oil uh, for and, and gasoline for the Lower Mainland. This is all about ostensibly what expanding uh, exports to Asia and America. So don't tell me that this has anything to do with our use of oil in the Lower Mainland. It doesn't. Um, the hypocrite argument really has has its limits. I think you know until you offer people opportunities uh, through public policy. Um, building expanded public transit, make uh, more walkable communities in urban design and these sorts of things, then it's very hard to fault people for using the mode of transportation that has been essentially imposed on society by previous government's policies. So so don't tell me that just because somebody drove their car to a rally against Kinder Morgan that they're a hypocrite and they don't have a right to have a voice about where we go from here. That's just a intellectually bankrupt argument. It doesn't hold water. Um, and so as far as alternatives in terms of um, harnessing uh, the capacity of the workforce in Alberta and, and creating employment opportunities and, and, and public revenues going forward, I'm all in favor of that. And a friend of mine um, is the founder of an organization called Iron and Earth. He's a um, third or fourth generation boilermaker, works in the oil sands. Uh, he, along with a bunch of his colleagues, uh, pipe fitters, boilermakers, electricians, carpenters, people who work in the industry but aren't necessarily um, married to it or, 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 or ignorant of some of the problems with, with the industry and would just love to be able to feed their families doing something that's more sustainable and healthy for the economy and the environment. 
um, they can very easily transition those skills to building renewable energy projects. You need the same sorts of, uh, of skill sets and, and labor force to build windmills and uh, solar panels and uh, geothermal plants and other things like this uh, as you do for oil sands projects. So we have a real opportunity where we could become a global leader. And we're really falling behind when you look at uh, the big major economic powers in the world, China, America, Germany, uh, Japan, uh, Brazil, and many other countries that that have uh, taken the lead. And China has been so, has invested so much public money uh, and resources into uh, clean tech that they've driven down the price of solar to a point where it's, it's not only competitive with, but it can actually beat coal and, and gas and, and oil in many situations. And to these people that make these clever, cutesy arguments that aren't that clever, really, when you drill down on them, nobody's saying that you're going to just replace gasoline with solar panels tomorrow. That's not what it's about. It's about creating an integrated grid uh, that has multiple layers to it. So when the sun isn't shining, the wind's blowing, uh, when that's failing, then we can draw down our hydro reservoirs that we have, which are firm power. We have a great asset here in British Columbia to anchor that to. Geothermal is a firm source of energy that we could bring into the mix in that regard. It doesn't mean you have to shut down every coal-fired plant and, and uh, you know, stop using uh, oil and gas tomorrow, but we should stop making the problem worse. We should stop prolonging. And the big issue here to me is the government subsidization of the status quo of continuing down this destructive path. This is something that there's a big movement in the world to simply stop public money for fossil fuels. And so the same people that argue for this type of energy economy are also the people that talk about the free market. And it's just hilarious to me because what we have here is a massive government bailout of a project that just doesn't make sense for a whole lot of reasons. So why don't we take that $4.5 billion and put it into building a renewable energy industry? Why don't we put it into building public transit across this country so we can actually start getting some cars off the road and then give people those choices so they don't have to drive their car to the Kinder Morgan rally? Uh, but we don't want to talk about that. We've act, we're acting like this, the only option for the Canadian economy is to continue to be hewers of wood and drawers of water and burners of the worst uh, fossil fuel on the planet and that we lack such imagination or we so lack imagination and foresight and, and ingenuity that we can't build any kind of other economy. We can't do what China and America and, and Japan and Denmark and Germany are doing. We're, you know, it's really an indictment uh, of, of the Canadian public and our, and our uh, derelict political uh, leadership here. Uh, that we are still so glued to this one dead-end, um, decades-old industry, and that we act like as, if, if we can't build another pipeline, the world's going to fall apart on us. If we build another pipeline and keep building more pipelines, the world is definitely going to fall apart on us, and it's because of the effects of climate change. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the ideological a kind of story that isn't getting told uh, in in the mainstream media, and uh, so we're not really we're not really having a fair discourse around this stuff. Thank you so much, Damien, for being generous as always with your time. Um, can you give us the website address for the Common Sense Canadian? Yeah, it's just commonsensecanadian.ca. Hey, thanks again for doing this, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks a lot. 
you have been listening to Conscious Landscapes. To hear previous episodes, to find out about forest bathing, or come on a journey on purpose with us, please visit eco-awakening.com. Bye for now.